All right, guys, welcome back. Hanging out with my my chief squad, my chief pod squad, Dr. Mamone, Dr. Mayo, as always. Hello, everyone. Pod squad. So we have a couple of articles that we're going to review from our, one of my favorite series, Things We Do For No Reason. So let's kind of evaluate a couple of things that we routinely do in the hospital that maybe has some questionable evidence behind it. So as you guys know, I have kids. <laughs> and these lovely little blessings, they don't sleep very much, right? And so oftentimes they'll come and wake me up in the middle of the night. Do you think I'm a very happy person the next day when they wake me up at four in the morning to show me their Lego? <laughs> I am not. Definitely not. But I'm also not 80 plus with dementia. So I might be a little groggy and complainy during the day, but coffee will fix me. Yeah, you're not confused. I'm not confused. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is one of the articles from Things We Do For No Reason has to do with checking overnight vitals on your patients. So I'm sure you guys see this a lot where you know at 4 a.m. the patient gets their labs drawn, they get their vitals checked, um, and then basically the, the question comes down to uh, should you even be checking those vitals in the middle of the night? So um, in terms of evidence for why we should be doing it, um, you know each of these articles always goes through why it sounds like a good idea and what the evidence is. Basically this is rooted in like history and protocol more than it is in any kind of study. Um, they mentioned something, yada yada, Florence Nightingale, that's for Aria. Hopefully all <laughs> That's when this Shout started, out. this idea of checking vitals every four hours regardless of status. Um, so there were a couple studies looking at, um, you know, basically nurses will frequently skip the vitals if they feel like the patient is stable um, and there's really no change in outcome. So it's kind of something a couple of nurses are already doing is they're using their clinical judgment to like either not wake up the patient because there's a lot of studies and data that shows that worse sleep will increase delirium, actually cause hyperglycemia, increase pain perception. I'm sure you guys have had a headache after poor sleep, right? So yep. now it increases the need for PRNs and et cetera. Uh, and you know, it's a common story where the patient doesn't get good sleep and the next day we now we're documenting hospital acquired delirium. And we could have easily prevented that with a little bit more REM sleep. You know, overall, there's pretty much just not great evidence to checking a, a, a vitals at 4 a.m. unless there's a need to. So I don't want you guys to think like we should skip it on everyone. Obviously, an ICU patient, septic <laughs> patient, a patient on like a BiPAP or a non-rebreather. By all means, we should be routinely checking vitals. They are still vital. However, if it's someone who's like awaiting placement or someone in OBS for cellulitis and they are completely stable, we're probably causing more harm than good by waking them up. So a couple suggestions from the article was to use more of a risk score, like a MUSE score, to uh, uh, you know assess who actually needs the vitals checked. Um, maybe doing them at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. That way you maximize their sleep and you're only missing like two hours of vitals that way. Uh, and then especially in the pediatric population, uh, maybe doing a continuous pulse ox because that's you know a vital that we can get uh, without waking up the patient. So. There are a couple other options that we have available. So that is my suggestion. Um, I will frequently put this in like a nurse order to not check vitals, especially if I have a patient who's like pending palliative placements. Yeah. That's one of the things that I'll try to do for comfort measures. So this isn't quite practice changing for me, but you know. I think this is one of the areas too where we can rely on our, our nursing staff and their gestalt too, because mm -hmm. I, I'd be willing to bet that they 
are pretty good at predicting, you know, who do they need to check on multiple times overnight and who's okay to, to let oh, sleep. Absolutely. So I think we can go on and slide into the next topic and talk about sliding scale see insulin. We, see what we did there. Yeah, sliding well scale insulin is monotherapy for glycemic control in hospitalized patients. So this is also by the Choosing Wisely campaign of things we do for no reason. I'm sure all of us have done it where we've done monotherapy sliding scale insulin for our patients. You admit them, put them sliding scale A, calculate their 24-hour requirements, and then adjust their insulin. So Guilty. Everybody's guilty of that. I've done that. So this is actually another thing, like the vital signs is deep-rooted on why we do this. It's been actually implemented by Dr. Uh, Josen in 1934. The, you know, he was a primary like, diabetic specialist, worked very heavily with insulin. So he started doing cytoscale therapy in 1934. It's been throughout practice since then on why we do it. There was a study that in 2007, 44 hospitals in the United States showed that approximately 43% of all non-critically ill patients with hyperglycemia are treated with sliding scale insulin alone. And then 30% of clinicians still use sliding scale insulin monotherapy even after we implemented um, like order sets to do basal and prandial insulin. Mm -hmm. So why do we do this? There's two major reasons why clinicians are more prone to do sliding scale insulin monotherapy. It's more of like we see a number, we treat the number, and especially in a hospital setting. You see something, you do something about it. But that's actually the wrong way to be doing things. That's more of a reactive process, not a preventative process. When it comes to blood sugar, we need to be preventative. So that was one of the things that they were talking about. And then convenience. It's so easy to order sliding scale. You don't have to do any calculations. You just click sliding scale A, it does all the order sets, you press order, sign, sign in, and done. forget it. Sign it and forget it. Very easy to do. So 84% of sliding scale insulin regimens of monotherapy were not effective in treating hyperglycemia and an effective kind of aspen guidelines where the range we want to be because it was such a reactive process. So what should we do instead? So they did a very extensive trial called the RABBIT2 trial, which is one of my favorite trials actually, and I'm an ID guy. This is, this oh, is endocrine based. I thought you were just a big rabbit fan. <laughs> I'm a big <laughs> rabbit fan. I like to bounce between science scales. Uh, but the RABBIT2 trial basically extensively um, looked at basal insulin with prandial insulin or sliding scale alone. And what they found is that you had improvement in blood sugars without an increase in adverse glycemic events, like hypoglycemia events, with the, the combination therapy. So you had improved outcomes with less adverse events. So that's actually our, our recommendation now. So things that we should be doing when managing these patients is doing a basal and a prandial insulin. Um, using a weight-based weight-based approach, they recommend 0.4 units per kg if they're less than 200 on their initial uh, blood sugar, or 0.5 per units per kg if mm -hmm. it's more. And then with that, uh, talking to leadership, make sure you understand the premise of sliding scale insulin and getting basal insulin regimens in there and making better order sets for those and make it easier and more convenient for, for providers to, to do this. So that's, that's basically what I had to bring to the table is make sure you always throw basal insulin on for your diabetic patients, whether they're on insulin or not at home. That's my recommendation. Absolutely. Do you think rabbit one was just a failure? And so <laughs> I hope it wasn't. It's was like, you know, let's do a second trial to, to confirm. So I've got to look into rabbit one. So I, 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 I love that article and it's the, you're definitely right. We are kind of chasing our tail when we wait for the sugar to go high. Then we chase mm -hmm. it with the sliding scale. Mm -hmm. We wait for it to go high again. We're not really accomplishing anything. I will say I also kind of a pet peeve of mine. I frequently will use the sliding scale on top of the like the you know basal and prandial, mm -hmm. and I still see random sliding scales throughout the day, and the patient's getting like <laughs> a random snack time and mm -hmm. like a random yeah. two minutes here and there. So let's tr try to consolidate it and make it like a pre meal as much as we can. And then this is 
obviously not part of this study, but if you ever have a type one, like it is even more inappropriate because you cannot have any gaps in, you know, uh, basal insulin or they'll go into DKA. Yeah, so never, never hold your long acting in that situation. Exactly. So yeah. this is specifically referring to type twos. Um, and, and I think there's probably a little bit of a fear, especially if the patient is like insulin naive or, you know, you, know, uh, you have to be kind of aware of the, like, their weight-based dosing and just be careful with that. But, you know, like we had on our service this week, someone who came in and they were on like mega dose insulin and we're like, you know, I don't know if they're really adherent to that regimen and they were going to be in PO for a study. So we just recreated their regimen and put them on you know, like 10 units of long acting and meal time and assess their needs and build upwards from there. Yeah, so, a lot yeah. of times, I mean, if somebody comes in with an insulin regimen, the question is how much should you reduce it when they're in the hospital? So for me, 20% is a good place to start. Um, so I'll cut their meal time and cut mm-hmm. their, their basal and of course have the sliding scale, hopefully that's been being given yes. with meals, but then, you know, adding up from there because, you know, we can go up to 180 in the hospital. So our, our goals are a little bit more lax in the hospital as well. True. Yeah. That would be a nice sugar. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very nice. Yes. I like to actually think of myself as the pancreas when I'm admitting my patients. Like, what would I want <laughs> if I was this patient? A little bit of basil, a little bit before meals. That's going to be my Halloween costume next year. The pancreas? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice and squishy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, Megan, what do you have for us? So my thing we do for no reason is actually the use of thickened liquids in hospitalized patients with dysphagia. This is something that we see all the time, especially in our elderly patients. You know, everybody seems to get a swallow study when they come in. And then we always have that dilemma of when they fail the swallow study, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep them NPO or, you know, so we're often trying to figure out in that situation what is the correct thing to do. So the theoretical concept behind thickened liquids is that the so the higher viscosity actually slows down the flow of liquid as it travels from the mouth to the oropharynx. So therefore, in patients with dysfunction, it allows the pharyngeal muscles time to coordinate the airway closure. So in theory, that sounds great. In reality, it's only been studied in patients who've had stroke, TBIs, and neurodegenerative diseases. So that's leaving out all the elderly patients, um, delirium patients. It's leaving out a whole group that we've extrapolated this data to. Obviously, we all know, you know, the major risk of aspiration pneumonia is a feared complication. And it is, it is pretty serious because it does have up to a 20% mortality rate. So we do want to avoid aspiration pneumonia. However, thickened liquids themselves are not without risk. So there's a higher risk of dehydration. I'm sure we've all seen this. Nobody wants to drink that, you know, pudding thick water. Um, so patients are, will be dehydrated. They've actually shown that they have a higher risk of having fevers and UTIs as well, likely related to poor fluid and nutritional status also may cause more delirium, um, similar to waking our patients up at night. Mm -hmm. If we're not letting them drink, it can lead to delirium as well. And then I think most importantly, thickened liquids have been associated with a poor quality of life, um, which makes sense logically. I mean, nobody wants to drink that. I don't know if you guys have ever tried it, but it's very unpleasant. So pudding thick, it's actually the way you make it is that you should be able to stick a straw in the middle Mm -hmm. and it should stick upright. Like that straw cannot fall over. So think about how thick that is and having to drink that. So, you know, there are a couple situations where thickened liquids may be helpful, and that's really limited to patients with extreme choking, especially if it's uncomfortable for the patient, like end-of-life scenarios, if you want them to have mm-hmm. something orally, but you the, the choking or the coughing is too uncomfortable, that's when they're used. 
And then there's a potential benefit in the acute phase after a stroke. And it's been shown to be beneficial up to one week, but after that, the benefits are no longer proven. So what should we be doing instead? So they've actually shown that collaborating with nurses, speech therapy, caretakers to work on proper strategies for, for swallowing has been proven to be as effective as even keeping a patient NPO. Proper swallowing means tucking the chin. So every time the patient swallows, they should be putting their chin to their chest and then uh, taking small sips, focusing on each sip. And then every time they drink, it should be supervised. Oral hygiene is also incredibly important. So they've shown that if you do oral hygiene prior to somebody eating or drinking, it helps decrease the bacteria in the oral cavity and then therefore helps decrease infections in the long run. So basically, you know, supervision plus oral, oral hygiene is as efficient as anything else we can do. And there's really minimal data behind thickened liquids and it leads to just poor patient satisfaction. Um, so this is one of my biggest pet peeves because we do it all the time in the hospital. So think about that next time your the nutritionist recommends thickened liquids for your patients. Just have that conversation. That's what I say. It's like have that conversation with the families, with the patients. Right. There is a risk. But there's also minimal reward to doing to doing right. thickened liquids. That's that's interesting that there's there's more than just like there's lack of evidence, but like the morale that you lose from like you, you get like a yeah. a very human thing taken away from you. Uh, it's interesting you can actually have increased infection rate from that. That is like kind of fascinating to me. Yep. Yeah. I don't think I smiled once during your presentation. I was just frowning like this. Yeah, if, if everyone I was just <laughs> disgusted. I, I'm a man who likes my calories. You know, I don't take away my, my food and water. Yeah. I mean, That's can you tough. imagine just not being able to drink water, though, and yeah. how miserable you would be? These patients are just getting hangry. That's, yeah. I think, what's happening. That's and true. imagine being super thirsty yeah. and then somebody just giving it's you It's like that. the frustration when you try to, like, you know, like inhale a milkshake with, through the straw, but you can't because it's too thick. <laughs> yeah. You're just getting mad because it's not... Yeah. But not you melting. signed up for that. Exactly. Yeah. You yep. signed up for it. Now it's forced yep. on you. And it's, not, it's a flavorless milkshake. All right. So hopefully uh, this is a little practice changing. I think ultimately we should think about the stuff that we do for our patients. Obviously, we are uh, on the, the patient's team and we want to get them better. And let's minimize stuff that you know can cause discomfort and not really provide a lot of benefits. So that's really the reason we bring up some of these topics. So I definitely learned something today. Uh, I will consider rethinking a little bit of my practice with some of these articles. So thanks for listening in. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.